From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. And what's going on is something I call the dirty little secret. In an individual physician's mind, their thought is, is that if I didn't vote for it, or I don't agree with it, I don't have to do it. That's Will Latham talking about governance in a medical practice. We'll hear more from Will later in the show. We'll also talk to David Miller about barriers to hospital-owned physician groups, and Kathy McTeague about successful financial integration after a merger. That's all coming up on this episode about strategic planning for independent practices. But first, a word from our sponsors. Imagine being able to increase patient access through innovation, reduce turnover in your organization, or plan a thorough revenue cycle that reduces inefficiencies. Those are just some of the problems facing medical practices that will be addressed at this year's MGMA Annual Conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Registration is now open. For more information and to register, visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19. Strategic planning in a medical practice begins with a governing board that can identify challenges and opportunities and provide solutions for the organization. To talk more about the structure and scope of a governing board, we're joined again by Will Latham, president of Latham Consulting Group. Will, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, you're here to discuss governance, the role it plays in a medical practice, how it can shape long-term strategic planning and short-term strategic planning. But let's go back and just define it first. What do you mean by governance? When I say governance, uh, here's what I mean. Governance is a set of structures, processes, and rules that the group establishes that is used to guide the group in doing business with each other, the members of the practice, and with external parties, and helps sort of steer the organization towards the accomplishment of its vision. It's, it's, once again, rules and processes and structures that helps the group do business within the group itself, do business with others, and is hopefully moving the group towards what it wants to accomplish over the long run. Years ago, you wrote an article for MGMA, and you really looked at something you called governance disorder syndrome. Um, what is that, and, and why do medical practices have an issue or obstacles with building their governance structure? Well, I've, one of the things I found after working with groups for a number of years were that was a common complaint. You know, we we have a board or we get together as a group, we discuss things, we make decisions, but then nothing happens or people don't adhere to the decisions or they, they even vote for it. And then they walk out of the room and do exactly the opposite of what they voted to do. And I spent a lot of time thinking about why that, why that was taking place. And what's going on is something I call the dirty little secret. And the, the dirty little secret in many medical groups goes something like this. In an individual physician's mind, their thought is, is that if I didn't vote for it or I don't agree with it, I don't have to do it. I'm going to say that again. If I didn't vote for it or I don't agree with it, I don't have to do it. And as you might imagine, then you, you, know, you never know whether or not anytime you quote unquote made a decision within a meeting, whether it's really going to happen or not. The reason this happens to some degree is that physicians tend to be conflict avoiders. There's actually a survey instrument you can use called the Thomas Kilman Index that gets into what style you use when dealing with conflict. And whenever we've been able to get physicians to take this instrument, we find that 80% of the physicians are conflict avoiders. Not so surprising if you think about it when, you know, if you're going to have a meeting, there's going to be a lot of conflict and you ask the physicians who wants to go. Not many people raise their hands. Then uh, sometimes there's one or two that do. They, they're okay with it, but usually they're conflict avoiders. So what's happening in the meetings is, is that during the meeting, there's potential for conflict on a certain issue. People don't say anything or they even raise their hand for it. Why? Because they're conflict avoiders. They don't want to have conflict. 
And then they leave the room and do exactly the opposite of what they voted on or what's been voted on. Why do they do that? Well, they know they can get away with it because no one will challenge them because they're conflict avoiders also. So that is sort of the fundamental problem that many groups face in terms of trying to have an effective governance. And I, I found that every group has to ask and answer three questions to even begin to get started on having a, a good structure of governance. The first question is, is how is we as a group are going to make decisions? And basically the answer you're looking for is we're going to talk about it, we're going to discuss the issue, and then we're going to vote on it. And we're going to go with the majority or the supermajority, whatever we decide. The second question is, is well, then what's expected of each physician once a decision has been made? And the, there's really the answer there typically is to support it, to do it, to adhere to it, to not sabotage it, to not go complaining to staff or hospital administration or whoever about the decision that's been made. And then the third question is, is what's a physician's choice, even if they don't like the decision? And there are really only three, or there should be only three. The first is do it anyway. That's group practice. It's kind of like being married. Sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you need to do what the other person wants. The second choice is that you, keep, you try to get it changed in the appropriate forum. You go back to the board meeting or the shareholder meeting to discuss it. But you keep doing it, keep adhering to the decision until such time as the decision has been, cha uh, been, uh, been changed. And the third option is to self-select yourself out of the group. And by that, I mean the, per you know, the person commits to not staying with the group unless they can adhere to group, uh, group agreements, group decisions. I, I did a retreat a few years back, a number of years back, where – at the beginning of a planning retreat, we went through that process, and the physician, one of the physicians in the group said, Will, um, so let me get this straight. We're here to make decisions. And I said, yes, you are. And he said, we're really going to make those, do those things we decide. I said, that's what you just agreed to. And he said, well, gosh, I guess I have to pay a lot more attention at this meeting. And the reason he said that was he knew before they weren't, you know, they might make decisions, but they really weren't going to implement them. So th that has to be solved. That that dirty little secret has to be solved by asking and answering those three questions to even begin making a dent in having an effective governance system. Let's discuss governance then. What are the building blocks? I mean, how does some how does a medical practice? They may have a board in place, but what would be the best practices and what should their objectives be uh, when they're building out that corporate structure? Well, you know, many groups are in a situation where they've grown as time has gone by and they, they try to make all the decisions together or they might have what they call a board which are people that really just go off and research issues and bring it back and, and the entire group gets together and says, uh, what are we going to do as a group itself? So there are a couple of different situations that you might run into. If you're a, if you're a smaller group, you know, you're 20 or less physicians in, in a practice, you may need, you know, or 10 or less. If you're 10 or less, generally everybody makes most of the decisions together. The group may empower you know, one doctor to do certain things for the practice, and they may have certain responsibilities with different people, but quite often the authority is kept with, to all doctors in the group. But once a group gets, you know, 10 or 15 or above that point, they begin thinking about, you know, are we being efficient in terms of decision-making? Are we being efficient in our processes? Are things really working out when we all get together and make decisions. And at some point in time, they will say, no, we're not. We need to have a board and that board needs to be structured with responsibilities and with authority. And so I often see it quite often, unfortunately, when groups get to be 30, 35 doctors and they're all trying to get together every month to decide every issue, including, you know, which hospital they should align with and what kind of toilet paper to buy. I call it the group grope. They just get together and meet for hours and hours and hours lots of ideas, lots of thoughts, but they just don't get very far because there's just so many people. So I think what needs to happen is, is most groups need to decide, first of all, what's going to be the overall structure 
of their governance of their group? Are they going to, to appoint a subset of physicians or elect a subset of physicians to make certain decisions for the group? And, and when they make that decision, if they make the decision to do that, then there are several sub-questions that need to be answered. For example, if they're going to have a board, how big will the board be? You know, will it be five people? Will it be seven people? Now, many people will make the boards too big. The optimum size for decision making, according to experts, is about seven. That's enough people that you get different thoughts, but not so many that you're overwhelmed with group process. So I always say, if your board is more than seven, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to get just representation? But every every person you add beyond seven weighs down the group and group process. The second question, sub-question is, is, well, what will be the authority of that board? In other words, what decisions can they make that they don't have to come back to all the shareholders about? And usually authority falls into hiring and firing, spending money, entering into contracts, or big strategic decisions. And so the group needs to agree on, you know, what's the, what's the fence? What's the What's, what's the point at which time, once again, the board has to come back to the larger group and what can they make without having to go back to the larger group for every decision? A third sub-question uh, related to the board is, is what vote will, vote will be required to do anything? If, if you've got a smaller group making decision, certain important decisions, how many people of that seven need to vote yes to make it happen? And what issues need to be supermajority issues? And then the last structural question is, how will those people be elected to serve in those roles? Now, I will tell you, this election is, is often something that is overlooked or, or kind of ignored by people. It's like, what, why is this a big deal? The reason it's a big deal is that if the election process is tainted, the whole governance is tainted. The people feel like people are reelected time after time in an unfair way they begin to maybe not accept the decisions made by that, that subgroup. So it's very important that a, there, there's an there's a election process that's fair and reasonable, allows for you know, secret ballot, and uh, allows for the chance for the leadership to be turned out. If they're reelected, fine. But it, do, it isn't something that's set up to kind of keep one group of people in, in office for forever. How do you keep a committee, or not a committee, but a board um, from being dominated by a dominant personality. And what I mean by that is, how do you ensure or take measures to have all seven of those members have a voice that's heard? Well, that is a challenging, um, a challenging situation. I mean, there are different personalities in every group. Uh, most groups do have people that have a louder voice than others. Uh, I think that, that, the, that the board ought to talk about the fact that each person gets the ability, uh, as, as part of ground rules, that each person is expected to participate, is expected to speak up. But one of the things I have found is that groups ought to think, even, even with a board of seven, let's say, they ought to think about using secret ballot when they're voting on issues. I, I quite often find that meetings, you know, being conflict avoiders, meetings, are, issues are discussed, and sometimes people just don't want to raise their hand to vote on a particular issue because they're afraid the other person will sort of look at them and, you know, be mad at them and may attack them in some way, shape, or form. And so being a conflict avoider, you don't want to do that. And quite often, the group will have discussions go on for a very long time when they realize they, they haven't reached a point where everybody fully agrees. And that's part of the reason why issues fall over to the next meeting and the next meeting and the next meeting is once they realize that not everybody agrees on a particular path to follow or a decision, they just keep the issue up in the air. So I found that if groups go and quite often, maybe all the time, use a secret ballot, they either, you know, by a three by five card vote yes or no, or some groups use voting technology to be able to uh, to to, uh, to actually show their decisions. It allows people to go ahead and vote their their real mind. What what can often happen in a group where there is a dominant personality is is the discussions will take place, maybe only a little discussion, and and then sometimes the dominant person is 
sort of the meeting leader, and they'll say something to the effect of, well, I guess we have consensus on this issue. You know, let's move forward. They, but they, they really don't have consensus. People really haven't been able to say what they want to say because they're conflict avoiders. They're afraid of being attacked, and they don't even get a chance to vote on it. And I'll give you an example. I work with a group of 25 physicians. They actually would get together and meet every month. And five of the physicians would have a very open and full discussion about an issue and argue about it. But they'd come to some conclusion. And the chairman of the group would say, well, not hearing any other thoughts on this or any other conversation. I'm assuming we have consensus. Uh, And so let's move forward to the next issue. Well, the other 20 doctors quite often disagreed with what these five came up with, but they didn't even get a chance to vote on it. Yes, you could say they had a chance to speak up just like anyone else, but the reality of it is, is not everybody has the ability to do that. And, and so what they needed to be doing was, was not assuming consensus. They needed to vote so that they really knew how people felt. Yeah. Beyond uh, conflict avoiders and governance disorder syndrome, are there any other common governance problems that you see out there? Well, so yes, I mean there are there are a number. Uh, one is is that it's very difficult for physicians to give up authority. In other words, if you're going to let a, a smaller subset of people make certain decisions for the group, it's it's difficult for physicians to give up authority. They're used to in their own practices having full authority, you know, to do what needs to be done. And so there are two things that need to happen related to that. One is is that needs to be specifically defined. What what authority does the subgroup have in terms of making decisions? But the second thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a lot of communication. In other words, the people who have that authority need to be communicating to the rest of the group, you know, why they're making decisions, what decisions they're making, you know, what what it, what is what is happening in that regard. Because the rest of the group who sees a board, a, a smaller, you know, subset of the group making decisions. Their thought process is is that they were doing something good for us. They'd be telling us. So maybe if they're not telling us anything, maybe they're doing something bad to us. And that creates a real paranoia amongst the rest of the members of the group if they don't hear kind of what's going on from the leadership. So I think it's incumbent on the leadership to be the primary driver of communication. I, I agree that that physicians, shareholders should read their emails. I agree that there are really very efficient ways to communicate what's been decided. But I think that it's up to the board to find all kinds of ways to communicate to the rest of the group what's going on in the practice. It might be minutes of meetings. It might be emails. It might be an internal newsletter. I know of one group that does, the administrator does what's called a voicemail blast once a week. Uh, he gets on the phone. He has some sort of a system that does this where he can call in, and he he is able to record a message. Here's what's happening at ABC Medical Group this week. And he does about 90 seconds of some of the big things that are going on, presses one button, and it automatically goes to the voicemail of all the doctors in the practice. The thing is, is that if the leadership, if the board does not do a good job of communicating, eventually the paranoia sets in, and even though they may be doing great things, the rest of the members actually take away authority uh, from the larger group. There's some other things that don't work very well. You know, m- meetings are a real problem for groups. They, they, they have very poor meeting processes. Some groups don't even meet or they try to avoid meeting as much as possible. And when they do meet, they have, as I said, very poor meeting processes. They have no ground rules. They have no agenda. And especially they have no one that serves as meeting manager. You know, I, I attended a meeting a couple of years ago where they were talking about adding a satellite office. This is a group of orthopedic surgeons, and and uh, one of the one of the doctors said, "Well, you know, I like skiing. Why don't we add a satellite office in Vail, and we can go out there and work, and you know, kind of trade back and forth for vacation, that kind of stuff." And another doctor says, "Oh, I love skiing. I I I like to ski in France." And the other doctor says, well, France. Now, if you go to France, then you ought to really do barge cruising. And that's kind of the way the discussion went because nobody was in charge of the meeting manager of pulling everybody back together and focusing on the issues related to what needed to be discussed 
and you know the issue at hand as opposed to superfluous uh, conversation. So, so meetings are critical because that is where most of the work of governance is done is in meetings, and they have to work well, or else the rest of the governance does not work well. All right. Well, Will, thanks so much for sharing your insights on governance and the the role that it plays in in building a a long term strategy and really the success of a practice. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. The explosion of hospital-owned physician networks has created dramatic changes in the physician community. While this trend remains viable, a number of issues are causing challenges to the new organizations. Chief among them are lack of management infrastructure, lack of a shared vision, and lack of physician leadership. To dive into this topic more, we're joined by David Miller, Managing Partner at HSG Advisors. Well, David, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Great. Now, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background and career in healthcare and where you've kind of settled in on this focus on uh, uh, hospital and physician group ownership. Sure. Uh, When I got out of graduate school, got my master's in health administration from Ohio State and moved to Louisville with what is now Norton Healthcare and was an executive there for 15 or so years, but decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So started a consulting firm with an associate. And his background was more physicians, physician recruiting, working with physicians. Mine was more hospitals. And so we kind of just met where the two intersected and started working on hospital relationships and integration with physicians. And so that's kind of how we got started on this focus in our firm now. HSG focuses on uh, physician integration and employed physician networks predominantly. We also do strategic planning work with hospitals that believe they want to have a real focus on physicians. So we do that as well. Right. And you've written an article that's going to appear in the July issue of MGMA Connection Magazine. It's about exactly what we're talking about. It's about barriers to performance in hospital-owned physician networks. What did you see in the market trends currently that led you to writing this article? So the article is really an outgrowth of a book we did that was published by the ACHE's publishing arm about employed physician networks. And one of the chapters in that book focused on the biggest problems we were seeing seeing organizations have as they tried to build these physician networks, as they tried to manage them. And so as as we wandered around the country, we, we see a number of problems, and I think those are pretty well understood. You know, they're, they're uh, big losses, a lot of barriers to making these groups r- really effective. But the article was then an outgrowth of some of those insights that related to some of the common themes we see as we look within organizations, some of those common trends, and really the two biggest ones that the article highlights are the uh, almost universal lack of an adequate management infrastructure to manage a group of the size hospitals have developed, and then uh, a lack of strategy, a lack of vision about what they want the group to be long-term. So you see the doctors sometimes pulling in one direction and the executives of the health system or hospital pulling in another. Uh, The third one that's the third most prevalent issue we tend to see is a lack of strong physician leadership, which kind of goes hand in hand to be truthful with the first two. But anyway, those are the, the trends we're seeing really exacerbated by significant losses for the health systems as they've gotten into physician employment. Now, I really enjoyed something that you wrote in the article that you said that uh, hospitals are in a catch-22 as they build large groups, the managers with the breadth of experience needed often don't exist. And that's not a very good uh, diagnosis of the problem, but tell us a little bit more about that. What are the dynamics at work here? What can be done about it? So what we tend to see is, and I'll make up a community, but it's pretty typical. You go into a community where 15 or 20 years ago, the largest physician group in town was three, four, or five physicians. And now the hospital has 
amalgamated a group through acquisitions and uh, employment of new physicians. Uh, now they've got a group of 60 or 70. And uh, particularly in the eastern half of the country, those groups were, they didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. And so managers with experience uh, operating a group of that breadth, uh, of that size, just don't exist. So, um, so in that issue is really one of the fundamental problems we see. And it's in some of the more metropolitan areas, it's a little easier to fix. There's a little more depth of uh, practice management talent than there is in some rural areas, but uh, very often there's just a dearth of talent. So, I mean, it's really a management development challenge. So what we see systems trying to do is be wise about who they pick and who they put in those positions and then really focus on developing those people over the long term, knowing that there probably is not some in in many situations, there's not somebody in the community or the region who's got the the capabilities that the health system really needs. They're going to have to develop that talent as opposed to just go out and buy it. Yeah, it does seem like there's long-term strategy is a, is a real problem. Um, and I, when you think about a medical practice, you can see how that this can come about. I mean, you're in, in the thick of it, putting out fires every single day. How do you kind of step back and develop that long-term strategy? But you write something here that's really powerful. You said that in the initial phase when these acquisitions occur that there's a focus on growth followed by mitigating losses as the lack of management infrastructure creates something that you call operational chaos. I, I love that phrase. I don't love the outcome of it, but what's going on here from both sides, from both the hospital and the physician side that's causing this operational chaos? Well, it's really related to the uh, somewhat to the management infrastructure we were just uh, issue we were just talking about. So what we see is we see employed networks going through six phases. You know, start out, the hospital really doesn't know what it's doing, is not employing a lot of doctors, and they're in the novice phase. Then they go through an accelerated growth phase where a lot of doctors are knocking on the door of the hospital CEO and saying, I'd like to be employed, or can you help our group? We've got operational challenges or IT challenges or that sort of thing. So the hospital goes through a growth phase and the, the management capabilities of the group never really keep up with the growth or very rarely do. And so we get into a situation where uh, we've amalgamated, we've created a big group, but we don't really have the revenue cycle processes or the the registration system or the IT or all those things integrated to operate as a big is a big group, and uh, a lot of health system executives laugh when they see that operational chaos uh, nomenclature because they said that's us. That describes us perfectly. Uh, and so, you know, from the physician side, usually uh, concerns about the viability and their ability to manage a practice uh, in an evolving environment to deal with all the IT demands. The reality that in smaller practices, physicians are vulnerable to insurance companies and can't get rates at the level that the health system can get them. So at that point, the, the physicians are uh, going to the hospitals, often being told what we call the big lie, which is that nothing's going to change. We'll employ you. It's all going to be fine. But then everything needs to change once you you start really developing a multi-specialty group. You've got to integrate the practices and and systems and operating systems and approaches just have to change. So doctors being driven into the arms of hospitals because of the unfriendly market they're facing and hospitals really not having a good handle, uh, at least in the early years, on how to really turn this into an asset, how to turn it into a multi-specialty group that's got value to the organization and the community. So does that make sense? It really does. And so what we're looking at here, there are structural problems, there are strategic problems, but you write that there are also leadership problems, particularly physician leadership problems. What, what are the issues in place then that create barriers to provide a better level of physician leadership? 
so if these if these groups are going to achieve their promise, which in our minds is a group that can manage risk, that can produce predictable costs, that can produce predictable outcomes, it's hard to envision that happening without a heavy dose of physician leadership. The physicians have got to be spearheading that effort and have got to be the ones leading their peers, educating their peers, uh, bringing the peers along. Uh, to create a common vision. And so you know, the uh, so what we tend to see is that some of the same issues you see on the hospital side, physicians aren't used to being to dealing with a group of this magnitude. They may have been a leader in a group of four or five, but they weren't none of them were ever leaders in groups of 40 or 50. Uh, and they may not necessarily have the skills because it's the the difference between leading and managing a small practice versus managing a behemoth medical group, you know, it's a pretty different set of skills. So we see organizations struggling with physician leadership development, selection of the right physicians, giving them didactic education so they understand some basic stuff like healthcare finance and that sort of stuff, but giving them experiential education where they're dealing with uh, case studies and problems on the ground that they're where they're trying to solve problems as well as build consensus among the doctors about how the problem should be solved. So we see a lot of health systems investing money and resources trying to to make sure that the physician leaders have the capabilities that they need to be successful as well. Mm-hmm. Now we've talked about a lot of the problems and they, they seem many uh, that are out there but these acquisitions continue to take place. So what are some of the best practices? What can be done strategically to mitigate these problems? So we always encourage our uh, organizations we're working with to invest in management infrastructure, and we've already talked about that. We also encourage them to invest in physician leaders. Uh, but the other thing that we see as being a big linchpin is uh, building a strategy for the group that's integrated with the strategy of the health system or hospital who's the employer. And the best practice we've seen for doing that, uh, in our experience anyway, is to work on a shared vision uh, of what the group is going to be 10 years down the road. Uh, and I'm not really talking about a short, pithy vision statement uh, like Walmart. We've got low prices every day, but more of a descriptive vision statement. Usually these documents ended up end up being three or four pages that kind of describe what the group is going to look like if, if we were doing one today in 2029. So what do we have to do in terms of developing physician leaders and what systems do we need to build if we're going to support consistently consistent usage usage of best practices, what data analytics do we have to have if we're going to uh, uh, build a great group which can manage risk? What data do we are we going to need that we don't have today? What are we going to do to make the work environment positive for the physicians and other providers? So instead of churning providers all the time. We're retaining the people we want to take, and they have a they have a reasonable work life as well. So those are just some of the issues we get into as we're creating a vision. But what we what we try to get groups to do is to step back and describe what what they want to look like in the future. As we say to the physicians, you know, tell us, describe for us the group you'd be proud to be associated with, that you think would be a great legacy for your career. Uh, always those groups are ones that are high quality. Uh, always those groups are ones that are efficient. And then after you describe that, get them to step back and say, so what do we need to do today to start that journey, to start the process of moving toward that vision? And that's, from our perspective, probably the best practice we've seen. Right. Now, do you have an example of one of these transactions and how it's been successfully implemented? Um, it, we've got a, a case study, and I can't remember if it was in the article or not, uh, with one client that we've done some work with on developing a vision for the group. Uh, basically, the process involved putting about a dozen physicians 
and a couple of health system executives in the room and having them write out and agree what they wanted the group to be. And this is one that's about four years old, so we've seen it kind of blossom and bear fruit. I mean, first of all, I'd say the you know the chief medical officer in this organization has done a superb job, which makes all the difference in the world. Uh, he would describe the vision statement as their constitution. So it's what what the guiding principles of the group are, and what they've all agreed uh, are going to be the things they're going to work toward. And so they share that vision statement with new recruits. So as a doctor joins the group, they sign the vision statement and say, this is what I'm, I'm joining to do. As physicians take leadership roles, it's easier for them to counsel other physicians now because they know what outcomes and what processes the group wants in place to be successful. But in that organization, they've also seen a number of successes that in their mind are kind of outgrowths of this effort. I'd highlight two things in particular. One quickly, but the you know, the general surgeons came back to the hospital and said, you know, we said we we're going to use best practice, but we're really not. We need to manage our patients when they're hospitalized. And we've said we want to produce great outcomes, but in our incentive compensation program, you're awarding us for mostly just showing up and and uh, being good citizens, we'd like to be awarded uh, rewarded for our clinical outcomes. And so they transition their payment process for that group first, but some other specialties later to where it really relates to the quality outcomes the hospital's hoping to achieve and the physicians are working to achieve. The other thing they've done is they kind of... Uh, decided that the biggest dissatisfier for the physicians in the group was managing patients with opioid dependency. And so they, and and basically it was each physician trying to deal with that issue themselves. And so they stepped back and said, let's, let's create a system as a, as a medical group of how we're going to manage these patients. So first of all, they said to patients, if you're going to be in our practice and you're going to have an ongoing prescription for opioids, you've got to be part of our assessment process. So they establish an assessment clinic with physicians, the hospitalist, palliative medicine physicians, some other physicians, and said, we want you to go to this clinic and be assessed. And if we think we can wean you from your opioids, we want to do that. We want to work with you to come up with alternative methods to manage your pain. And in and so in in setting up that clinic, they've weaned over a third of the people, over a thousand people who had ongoing prescriptions for opioids in the practice. It's improved quality, uh, and the ERs changed their their prescribing patterns as well. By the way, it's improved quality. It's improved the quality of work life for the physicians because they're not out there trying to deal with these demands for probably inappropriate drugs without a backup system. Uh, and it's improved the lives of many patients as well. So that's kind of an example of what we see organizations trying to create with these practices, with these larger groups, and how creating a common vision kind of in one situation was a catalyst for moving forward. All right. Well, David, thanks so much for sharing that case study with us and for joining the podcast today. Very good. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. The trend of consolidation across healthcare also poses another problem. How do the two entities exist as a financially integrated practice? What are the steps they need to make to operate under a single tax ID, to share the same EHR or the same IT security? Our next guest, Kathy McTeague, CEO of Pediatrust, is here to explain financial integration and the emergence of what she calls medical practice supergroups. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, in the past, you've given presentations on something that you call the financially integrated practice model. That's a, that's a mouthful, but uh, what, what do you mean by that? What is the financially integrated practice model? That is a mouthful. I, I, I guess the way we look at it or I look at it is it's, it's really the merger of two entities. And by merger, so it's not an affiliation. It's really 
everything under two or more entities come together, operate under a single tax ID. All of the employees are employed by that entity. The group uh, would or entity would offer, for example, common benefits to all the employees. The fee schedule is the same. Tax and other financial reporting is a common report uh, versus individual businesses. Uh, I, I think from the way we look at this or I look at this, the other important note, thing to note is that risk is also shared among the owners. At least that's the way I understand a fully fi financially integrated practice model to be. So with common ownership, it's really difficult not to share risk because, for example, whether it's the fact that there's one uh, clinic malpractice policy, uh, certainly in this day and age, there's potential for cyber incidents or other uh, you know, risks related to IT security, uh, employment, EEOC, or other labor claims. They're all shared by the owners of the new entity, just like they would have been prior to, to a merger. I also believe there's, you know, maybe it's obvious, but some financial risk as well. Uh, so I think that um, I think that that's how I look at it. I will say that even in light of the risks, I don't want to focus really only on that. But there's many, many benefits in terms of being more efficient as a larger group, and that's something that it, it offsets maybe or mitigates some of that risk as well. Okay. Now you've presented a theory that there's actually an opportunity in all of this for practices to really explore this integrated model. What do you mean by that? What's the opportunity there? Well, what, what we've seen, and I saw this certainly when I was the executive for the IPA, independent practice has just become more and more difficult to, to be successful with. And of course, I said now twice my experience has been pediatrics, but I think that is true from what we hear from other specialties as well. So this changing world of healthcare is hard to really stay abreast of things in terms of changes. Many changes with value-based contracting, changes in HR law, we, uh, cyber needs, uh, IT security, things like that have changed. So I think if you look at, at the consolidation that happens around you in the marketplace, if you really want to stay independent, an opportunity to do so is a financially integrated model, also called a supergroup. Uh, and I, I think that there's, as I said a minute ago, a lot of efficiencies that can be part of this model and would support doctors who really want to stay independent in doing so. So we centralized, and I think most supergroups, financially integrated groups do this, we centralize some of the functions that all offices have to do. So physician billing and contracting, payroll benefits, accounts payable, human resources, those sorts of, of functions are centralized and allows for, for groups to remain independent, kind of in light, you know, with consolidation happening around them. Uh, and the groups that I'm familiar with locally, the doctors really aren't of the mind of becoming employees of a health system, no offense to anyone who is, but that, that their goal is to remain independent and that's why they've sought out this type of a model. Um, mm -hmm. And there's certainly also purchasing power and other, other benefits that you know, the list is, is certainly longer than just the efficiencies. Right. Now, is a super group, is there a uh, scientific definition of that? Or do you have to reach a certain benchmark or milestone? Or do you just, you get, do you get to call yourself a super group at a certain point? I think anyone can call themselves a super group if they want, right? Because it could also be defined as just a super group. Just kidding. So I think that it's really, we're asked that question, you know, how many makes a super group? I don't know that there's any such number. I was just at a conference last month of pediatric supergroups, and there's some that are a dozen or more doctors, and they consider themselves a large group, and others like ours have 70. There's a group that I know quite well, based out in New York, that has 150 uh, providers. So it's, it's, now to me, that's a supergroup. Um, so I think it's, it, there's really no definition per se. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, practices that have su successfully implemented this model, do you have an example where you could kind of walk us through sort of a case study where it's happened and, and, and done so successfully? Well, I would certainly consider ours successful. Uh, I think there's others locally that I am very familiar with that have also been successful, a large orthopedic group, a large OB group. 
large urology group, uh, and certainly dermatology and other specialties. Most seem to be single specialty, and I think that's what helps with the success because it's there's just having that commonality among the physicians that are part of the group makes it, I think, a little easier to manage and to have kind of a common goal in how they're going to function. Uh, walking you through, the, the group I know best is ours, and I think that um, when, when we looked at forming, we really had a lot of help from some attorneys who understood the model well and could explain it to the point where our physicians were very comfortable with it. I think that certainly um, having that those good those advisors that can really work with a group that's interested, and uh, we've helped practices with this as well. We're, we're not in the business of really doing consulting, but we've had a number of groups reach out to us, and we advise them to say to say get an attorney who's done this before, or at least has a great deal of experience in healthcare related law, and to get an accountant who is familiar with this type of a model, so that. Once you're operational, those things are in place, and some of the decisions that need to be made can be made even before you form. Uh, so we decided, for example, how you're going to share overhead is a big discussion in these groups. Uh, there's a great deal of autonomy in, in our structure, and I think in many of these structures with how they get to do their day-to-day, -day, so to speak. Uh, we don't go in and change position schedules or you know, how they staff their, their offices and such. But, but there are some things that, that do change. And one of the things that everybody asks is how do you share your overhead? And that's, it's frequently an additional expense to the group, to the practices that merge. So it's an important discussion to have early on. I know that it can vary depending on the consolidation, but what's the time frame look like from start to finish when you begin to have those initial discussions to when the ink is dry and, and everybody's under that same roof sharing that same overhead that you were talking about? That's a great question. For our group, it was a very, it was an extended period of time because there was a much larger group of doctors interested initially. And over time and just additional discussion, it, it shrunk a bit uh, to, you know, being 38 doctors instead of what was in a much larger group initially. I think that a realistic timeline is about a year, but once the decision is made, what we did wrong um, is, is an easy one to remember. We only gave ourselves three months to actually form the company and go live under the new tax ID. So a longer period of time there is definitely a recommendation we make to everyone. Six months, we want it to be a, a effective January 1st, and that's why we gave ourselves such a short time. It was just the timing of when we were ready to have that final discussion that put us you know, in September of 2012, and we went live uh, January 1st of 13. So we advise most of our the people that ask us is to give yourselves, from the time you make the decision, six months to get your house in order before you start operating under your new tax ID with all the other pieces that are needed to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it can't all be a smooth transition. Um, what are some of the pain points like that you have to plan for and work around and, and, and begin to make those work for the new single entity? What, what are they? Are they technological? Are they staffing? Um, where, let's walk us through some of those pain points. Uh, I think the one... I guess the pain points are minimized if the physicians are like-minded. So when there's a decision to be made, because there's many, many decisions that are made in terms of what, what's in the operating agreement, who makes decisions in the group, uh, and, and what other services are needed by the group, what will be shared, what, what are you going to centralize, what you're not going to centralize, those pieces. If those are ironed out in advance, I think it certainly minimizes the pain points. But if you have doctors that don't agree, it's that's the biggest challenge. We were very fortunate that the doctors, because they spent so much time during these educational, informational meetings, that they really got to know one another. And by the time the operating agreement was written, the attorneys really knew what to include and what our, what our governance structure would look like. I think a lot of doctors, when they're in independent practice, they're very used to making their own decisions, of course, and they, they decide how they're gonna do things and go about things. And then once you merge with another group, you have to step back and think about, well, 
is this something we need to talk about together? So it may not be your office schedule, but it would be, for example, you just mentioned technology. We knew that we'd all go on the same electronic health record. That was a very big decision. I think most groups that that come together in a large or larger organization make a similar decision to go on the same platform. It makes things much easier, especially from the back end of billing. Uh, but those are big decisions that need to be made in part in advance of the merger. And then once things are operational, there's still many things that come up. I think I think one of the things that surprised me the most was uh, some of the, the culture changes. And when I say that, I don't mean everybody was doing primary care pediatrics, so it wasn't the work we were doing so much as how things affected the staff. And I guess maybe we weren't as mindful about the staff would now have a handbook, for example. Not every practice had a formal employee handbook. They might have had some pieces of a handbook, some policies and such, but we were much larger and more formal with how staff were uh, maybe held accountable and and that there were just, uh, to, be, to be fair to all staff, there were some policies in place that maybe weren't there previously. Uh, the other big change when it came to staff was that the doctors, we really wanted the owners to stay away as best they could from some of the human resource issues and let us handle that through a human resource uh, individual who had more experience with that so that we would, once again, mitigate some of the risk related to, to labor issues. Um, so there, there were other challenges for certain. I, I think looking back, the biggest challenge was that we only gave ourselves those three months to get ready. And after that, I think our board, our owners did a great job of taking on the next challenge and making a decision because they were like-minded and could do so. In, in your case, were you the acquirer? Were you acquired? How did that go down? So. I don't have any ownership in this company. I'm not a physician. Uh, I don't, I wasn't acquired. I actually was leased to the group early on to help them form by the hospital. So I was a, a consultant, so to speak. Our, our groups were merged, not acquired. So when we have a group that joins us, we had seven initially, we had two join us a year and a half later, another join us, and then two more joined us this past year, 2018. They're not really acquired so much as merged into, they become a business unit within Pediatrust. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a, I, I mean, I guess maybe, I'm not an attorney, I should have said that at the very beginning of our, our call, but I would believe that it's more of a merger than being acquired. Right. Now, in your writings and past presentations, you say that it, one of the important factors in making this decision is understanding the current marketplace so it can help inform these decisions. What does someone need to know about the current marketplace? What is, what is involved there? Well, I think just to know what your relationship will be with, with existing referral sources, with hospitals, understanding the marketplace when it comes to the payer marketplace, the managed care companies. We had multiple relationships at the time with uh, physicians that were part of other large health systems in terms of their PHOs or IPAs and understanding whether those would be able to continue uh, or not after formation. In our case, they did, but to really be mindful of what will change in terms of those relationships. I think it's a little different sometimes for a specialist than it is for primary care because specialists uh, you know, tend to have the referral sources are coming from elsewhere, so you want to make sure that you're being mindful of that as well. Um, we had one specialist join us, and one of the questions is, will other primary care doctors refer to her now that she's part of us? That didn't impact anything. She, they're very separate. She's separate in the sense that we don't steal any patients from her or anything like that. But I think it's something to be mindful of depending on the specialty. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times are You've mentioned attorneys, you've mentioned CPAs. So if someone's making these uh, decisions, uh, you know, they're, they're considering merging uh, with another entity, what are the legal and fiscal requirements that they need to be considering leading up to that? Well, certainly to seek out advisors that have the type of experience that they're looking to do in terms of formation. I don't know that I would say that out of our founding owners, 
everyone really liked their accountant or their attorney and other advisor, their broker for insurance and such. Uh, we didn't end up using any of those advisors uh, because they didn't have the type of experience that we needed. So we had, we actually used the attorneys that had presented some of those informational meetings. That was who we worked with as our attorney, still is our attorney today. We did expand that to having an employment attorney. We don't fortunately need to use him all that often, but we have an employment attorney. So we're actually making sure that we have the right advisor for all of our work. Same with the accountant. We had a different, a national company actually do the performa for this business. We had interviewed, I think we had an RFP for everything. We had an RFP for the accounting firms. They came in and presented. And the person that we hired has a great deal of healthcare clients and had a couple that were similar in model to us. That was very important to us. Uh, similarly, with we have a bank that has a healthcare arm. So everyone enjoyed their banking relationships as well. Uh, but when we sat down and met with banks who had uh, told us what it would look like to work with us, we selected a bank that had a healthcare arm. They understand some of our issues very, very well when it comes to, you know, patient refunds and things like that. And that was important to us. Um, you have to decide the type of company you're going to be. We're an LLC. That was recommended by everyone. So that was kind of an easy decision. And then you need, need to just decide how you're going to manage things under this single tax ID with one bank account, with uh, physicians not in our world. And I know others do this differently. And we tried to learn from lessons of other practices that had done this before us. We really limited the uh, access for example, for physicians to write checks, not because they're owners and they have a lot of, they have all the say in this company, but just in terms of managing things, uh, everyone agreed very early on that we would do so centrally. So other doctors don't sign contracts, for example. Uh, I sign contracts or our chairperson does. And that might seem a little unusual, but we end up with uh, just a better product at the end when we have centralized those sorts of functions. So they don't, they don't have a checkbook and it's fine with them. Mm -hmm. Are there, uh, final thought here, are there any best practices that you would suggest for our listeners in case they are considering this, things that maybe you've learned through trial and error that would help them uh, make better decisions? I guess the one thing we did well was to really be mindful of who we were going to use for advisors and to get some help from practices that had done it before us. And that's uh, what we've tried to, you know, pass along to other groups contacting us is that type of advice. I, I think we probably would have had more missteps, so to speak, if we had, um, if we had not done that type of research. The, the three-month go-live was not at all good. That was that was a real problem for us. But I don't know that, um, I think there's, I'm sure other lessons learned, they're probably just not as major of, of what we do. I, I will tell you that, I th I, maybe another thought, I think we've done a far better job of explaining to practices who are contemplating joining us what changes versus what doesn't change. We used to kind of minimize what does change. You know, oh, it's pretty much the same old. You, you still have your own staff. Your patients don't even know. But I think we've really changed our focus to explaining right up front what does change so that that's really solid in, in the minds of those who join. Um, and, of course, we didn't know that until after we formed, but that was something that we do better at now. Mm -hmm. it, just to clarify that again, what are those biggest changes and what's that thing that uh, people should be expecting? Well, I think all of the legal changes that I've mentioned, you know, the tax ID, having common benefits, having some common comp compensation models for staff. We've got doctors paying nurses one amount in one office and another in another, and, and they might be very disparate. Over time, we've brought those together. So it's it's not out of the box, some of that changes, but I think the HR management piece is something that was very new to our physicians and other practices that I've talked to. So I think those things change and we make it really clear. We also require, which is you know kind of a bad word maybe, but we require the offices to have a practice manager uh, that's got experience. So some of the managers that we had early on uh, didn't work for us for long. They, it, was, it was by attrition, but that they really uh, weren't 
the expectations that we had were not within you know their experience to really be successful with so we we look for talent when we're bringing in managers because without strong managers we truly believe we're only as strong as our weakest business unit and that's something that's critical to us so those are the things those are some of the things that we changed uh and it's it's certainly you know previous to forming a number of our offices didn't have to offer uh, health benefits, not that they didn't want to, but they didn't have to, and it was quite costly. So we make sure everyone knows that that's a requirement of our business and that if you join, uh, that that's an expense. If it's a new expense, sometimes it's a savings to them, but if it's a new expense, we try to outline all of that. Okay. Well, Kathy, thanks so much for sharing these insights. It's been fascinating to learn more about mergers and financially integrated models. My pleasure. Well, that concludes our episode on strategic planning for independent practices. Thanks to our guests, Will Latham, David Miller, and Kathy McTeague. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love to hear from listeners about the show. You can email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.